Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. I'm Tyler Tischlar with Superior Book Promotions in Marquette, Michigan. And I'm Irene Watson with Reader Views in Austin, Texas. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to episode number 116 in our series. Tonight's topic will be Getting Published by a University Press, and our special guest is publisher Mark Long. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Please send your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Publisher Mark Long has a BA from the University of Texas in Austin and an MA from the University of North Texas, both in English. In 2004, after teaching for 10 years, he oversaw the formation of TSTC Publishing, the publishing arm of the Texas State Technical College System, with a list comprised of academic and technical textbooks, technical career guides, and technology forecasts. TSTC Publishing's mission is to provide low-cost yet high-quality materials to institutions of higher education and private industry. TSDC Publishing offers faculty throughout the United States the opportunity to initiate and participate in a variety of textbook development projects. Of course, in the 21st century, a textbook is no longer just a textbook. So TSDC Publishing projects now include such auxiliary products as instructor guides, student workbooks, CD-ROMs, DVDs, e-books, and companion websites. In addition to offering editorial help and guidance to faculty, assistance is also available in areas of material production and distribution and sales. Well, welcome, Mark. I'm really interested to talk to you tonight. I was in academia for a while myself, so I, I know a little bit about textbook. I'd like to start out just by asking if you can tell us a little bit about the author's whose books you publish, and is it strictly like professors? Just because I know that... Um, in academia, they have that uh, publisher-parish sort of mentality. So uh, is it specifically like professors who submit manuscripts to, or what kinds of uh, credentials do authors need when they look to get a book published with you? There's actually two types of projects, typically, that we will take on. On the one hand, we will have a faculty member that comes to us and says they want to publish a book in a particular area and a lot of times this will be an outgrowth of materials that they've already developed and are using in their classes. For example, one of the first books that we published was Basic Electronic Troubleshooting for Biomedical Technicians. We had a couple of instructors uh, who weren't happy with the books out on the market. They developed a lot of materials on their own and so then they came to us and said, we would really like to shape this up and flesh it out to where we could actually formally publish it and market it around the country. The other way that we typically do projects is if, based on our own experience at this point, since we've been publishing books at, for six years now at TSTC Publishing, is that we'll see a need for a particular type of book and then we will go out and find either a freelance writer who will write the book for us or we will find a subject matter expert in a particular area and then we will pair them up with a freelance uh, technical writer or instructional designer who will shape those materials into a book. 
Uh, a project along those lines that we did was that we did uh, college success guides, kind of uh, college study skills uh, book a couple of years ago called Taking Charge, Your Education, Your Career, Your Life. And it was really uh, one that we came up with on our own. And then we got input from instructors who taught those types of classes and then contracted with a freelance writer who came in on the back end and produced the actual text of the book itself. So those are really the two kind of basic ways that we end up with the book projects that we publish. Well, could you tell us a little bit more about, especially the ones that you decide to find a freelance writer to do, how do you uh, determine if there is a need in the market for a book on a specific topic, and uh, how how do you get the word out about that book so that it you know so the demand for it spreads once the book is published? Uh, we do it. We spend an awful lot of time doing varying degrees of uh, formal and informal market analysis, so that if we decide to do a book in a particular area, uh, the first thing that we'll do is go to Amazon and type those keywords in and we'll see what books exist currently on the market and what kind, how they're approaching the subject matter. Uh, we do a series of technical career guides and so the first thing we did was that we looked at a lot of career guides to see the various ways that they were put together, what kinds of information they had in there, and what kinds of information or content we thought that we could add that we thought would be useful that wasn't in ones that were currently on the market. Because you always have to have that book that can't just cover the same ground or have the same kind of content that's already out there. Uh, otherwise, there's, there's really no need to publish it. Then what we'll do is that we have a couple of different ways that we'll go in and look at the specific sales of books once we have a list of titles that we can look at the sales of those books. Uh, for example, we use a service from Baker and Taylor. They're a big book distributor called Pub Alley that they provide that will show the specific sales data uh, for books that have been sold through them in of any title by any publisher so that we can really extrapolate from that what the exact sales are of these books that are in the area that we might be interested in doing a book in. As far as marketing the books once they get sold, there's really two basic ways that we sell books. Uh, we have adoption sales where a faculty member uh, we'll decide to adopt a book for a class, and so they will either order that from us or from a book, book distributor, or there's books that are strictly trade sales that are uh, ones that you would see in national bookstore chains, Barnes & Noble, Baker & Taylor. Sometimes we have books that fit exclusively on <clears throat> excuse me, one side or the other, either adoption sales or trade sales, uh, but typically, we kind of we like book projects that potentially have crossover between the two areas, so that we have the chance to maximize sales. On the adoption side, uh, we have a marketing manager and a sales manager, and what they will do six months at least before the book comes out is that they will identify all of those departments in the country at 
especially two-year colleges that um, might have a need for this book, we figure out who the instructors are that are teaching those classes, and ultimately we end up contacting all of these departments um, to see if they'd be interested in a desk copy, if they would like uh, that we could send to them to take a look at, and then we follow up with them from there. On the trade side, uh, we work with a book distributor out of New York, out of New York, that has their own sales team that deals with the buyers at the bookstore chains at the national level. So what they really want to see is that we're doing marketing that will drive people into the bookstores. And so in those in those instances, we'll do things like have Facebook pages, uh, blogs for particular book projects, uh, email newsletters that are devoted to particular product lines, um, and we will also, I think I said direct mail pieces, uh, we also go to a lot of trade shows for both libraries and faculty members so that we get the word out about those as well, too. Well, I had no idea. And so I'm just like, for some reason, I, I just had a totally different concept of what a university press was. So are um, do all universities have presses, or is it just uh, the select few that do? Well... In some ways, TSTC Publishing is a little bit different than the classic university press um, because we're the the two-year te Texas State Technical College is the state-supported technical college system in Texas. There's four colleges in the system, but for the kind of publishing program that we have, it's relatively unique for a two-year college uh, in the United States. And your classic kind of university press at the four-year college level uh, will focus an awful lot on uh, original research, literary criticism, academic criticism. And one of the problems with that uh, on the financial side is that an awful lot of the – there are fewer and fewer university presses every year um, because subsidies from the schools – uh, for university presses have dropped way off. University presses typically have a very difficult time uh, being financially self-sustaining, so they have to look to the school or outside sources for funding, um, whereas what we do um, is that we're designed to be financially self-sustaining um, through the sales of books uh, to higher education. And that being said, uh, in terms of the credentials of the people who write the works and a lot of that initial review of manuscripts and projects uh, that come into us or even the ones that we initiate undergo a lot of the same kind of rigor in terms of the peer review process more so than, say, you would say in a strictly trade book publisher. Do, are these books that you publish then all at the university level either for, you know, as recommended reading or as part of the curriculum, or do you venture out and publish other books too? Well, uh, we do some books that are designed to be primary textbooks for courses. Uh, we did an electromechanical principles of wind turbines. It's designed to be a standalone uh, textbook for uh, wind energy courses. On the other hand, we have a book coming out this fall that is a social history of Waco, Texas, called Lust, Violence, Religion, Life in Historic Waco. 
that was actually an outgrowth of the work done by graduate students at Baylor University here in Waco, and uh, that's one that's really designed to be a, more of a supplemental text as a collection of essays about uh, Waco's history to be used in uh, Texas history classes. Mark, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um I guess I'm curious as a uh, when I was a student and even when I was an instructor at the university level I heard constantly complaints about the prices of the books and how much it, you know you could it would cost you hundreds of dollars a semester for your books and I I'm I'm thinking back to like books oh back when I was in school and stuff like in the 90s um so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, have have the costs of textbooks continued to increase, or has that in any way changed because of uh, changes in technology like print-on-demand or um, e-books or even this move that so many of the universities have gone to teaching classes online? Well, um, historically, over the last 20 to 30 years, Textbook prices have risen on average about twice the rate of inflation every year. And it's actually a very odd phenomenon about how uh, textbooks are priced because typically in trade publishing, a good rule of thumb is, is that your uh, retail price of your book is going to be roughly ten times the the unit cost to get the book printed. So if you see a 14.95 trade paperback, that is going typically that means that probably the the printing cost on that book was around $1.50. The pricing in textbooks is just totally crazy in my mind as to how that works so that it's a real rarity um, to see a textbook anymore that's under $100 or significantly under $100 um, for any given class, and there's lots of them that are significantly higher than $100. When we got started at TSTC Publishing, one of our missions, as mandated by the school, was to produce um, much lower-priced textbooks so that for us, we can do an 8.5 by 11, perfect-bound, softback, uh, black and white interior, 250-page textbook, and the price on that typically will be between 30 to 40 dollars. We have some that are lower than that, a few that are a little bit higher than that, um, because I think historically, uh, textbook publishers have, big textbook publishers have gotten really used to the kinds of profit margins that are built in uh, to the, the adoptions that they get. Because in textbook publishing, and it's a lot the same with how libraries face journal subscriptions in higher education, there's a big disconnect between the people that make the decisions about which journals that the schools subscribe, subscribe to or uh, what books the students are going to buy. In both cases, this is faculty they're making these decisions, but they're not the ones who are actually having to pay for them. And so, I mean, I would say that there's a kind of moral hazard that's being created there um, because of the fact that the faculty often have the ability to make these kinds of choices without being impacted by the 
financial considerations that they create for the people who are actually paying for them. Okay, if I can if I can follow up on that a little bit, um, I'm I'm curious as to I guess who who your company specifically sells uh, books to. Is it is it primarily to university bookstores? Because I I, I know that. Lots of um, even here in, in in Michigan, we've had universities where there's been a university bookstore, and then a group of students will get together and form another organization to sell and resell the textbooks at lower prices. Or there'll be alternate uh, bookstores opening in the town that will sell the textbooks. And also, I uh, I remember as a professor, there were people that would come around and buy. I, I mean, I would get stacks of review copies. And there would be these people, I don't even know what exactly their deal was, but they would come around, they would buy these review copies off of me and give me like a dollar or two a book. And I was, at that point, I was a graduate student, so if I could make three bucks, I was willing to you know, sell the books I wasn't going to use. So can you tell us a little bit about, is there any purpose in those alternate, alternate bookstores and who, I guess, who are you selling your books to? Is it just university bookstores? Um, typically, most of our adoption sales, uh, faculty members will actually decide to adopt a book for a class, and then they will notify their campus bookstore, who will then contact either us directly to buy books from us, or they will, if they don't deal with us directly, they will deal with a book distributor like Ingram or Baker and Taylor, um, who also have our books in their database and can supply those bookstores. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been a giant um, market that has been created by selling used textbooks, students informally among themselves. You can buy used textbooks through Amazon now. You have a lot of textbook rental programs that are designed to help lower the cost of textbooks to students. And in a lot of ways, there's a real tension right now in the industry uh, because you see textbook publishers uh, doing a, uh, engaging in a variety of tactics that are designed to undercut the used textbook market uh, to a very high degree so that they will rebundle textbooks together so that the ISBN is changing from year to year. So to be able to buy one book um, Students will have to buy all three that are in a bundle. Uh, you'll see a lot of things uh, where work, uh, textbooks will have tear-out worksheets so that they can um, become single-use textbooks so that there's no resale value at that point. And I think one of the big reasons that we're going to see a move towards more digital textbooks or e-books, um, and, and the jury is really out, on whether digital textbooks or ebooks are any more efficient in terms of learning, but I think that publishers are moving towards that route because you can't really sell a used ebook uh, from one person to another. So I think textbook publishers are really going to embrace that technology because one, they'll be able to cut college bookstores almost completely out of the loop. Uh, there'll be online retailers that will sell books. And it will also uh, pretty much destroy the textbook rental and used textbook market as well, too. I can see that happening for sure. So 
I'm wondering now, we're going to take a little uh, turn in another direction, and what is it that you look for in a proposal, or do you, and how, you know, do you want a query first, or do you want a proposal, or the manuscript sent to you? Just give us that process that you go through. Um, you know, it, it really goes both ways. Sometimes people will come to us and just say, here's my whole manuscript, do you want to publish it? Um other times, people will say, I have an idea for a manuscript, and so, um, you know, we would like to let you uh, take a look at it and let us know uh, what you think about it. And like I said, for us, really the big thing, when whether it's a complete manuscript or if it's a query that people are sending us, the book that they're proposing really has to fill a need that is not already being met uh, in the market. For example, if you're teaching an American Literature Survey course, uh, there's a million of those classes across the country. At the same time, 99 out of 100 instructors are going to use the Norton Anthology, a Norton Anthology of Literature or one of the other two or three big anthologies that are out there, and there's really not necessarily much new to be brought to an anthology of American literature. On the other hand, when you're looking at an emerging technology field, and we have a lot of those at TSTC uh, as a technical college system in nanotechnology, biotechnology, wind energy, solar energy, in these emerging areas, there really aren't any good instructional materials. So those are ones that we know right off the bat are ones that there's a niche there in that market that needs to be filled, and so there's a lot more opportunity for us there as publishers to do that. And I think that that's one of the things that in particular makes print-on-demand, especially for us, a smaller niche publisher, that print-on-demand really works for us because we can we can print as few as I mean, we can print as few as five, but, I mean, we don't want to print that few. But, I mean, we can print 100 or 100 copies of a title to fill an order at once, and we're not having to print 5,000 at a time that are sitting in warehouse um, in a warehouse that we have to sell through before we can make one change or um, that we're just absorbing those costs until we finally can move that much inventory out. But it really has to... Any book, no matter what, has to to, to meet a need uh, that's not being currently met in the market, um, no matter what kind of book it may be. I so agree with you, and uh, you know that goes for the same as fiction books or any other books that are out there. It really does have to fill a need and really be relevant. The I just want to backtrack a little bit here, and I do want to talk to you about um, print on demand, but what? do you work for in author credentials? If we're dealing with a freelancer, say writing a technical career guide, because uh, we have a whole series of those that we put out, uh, those are ones where we're looking for someone who has a solid editorial and writing background, uh, that they have the kinds of clips and publications and references that show that they have the organizational and writing skills to bring a project in on time. Um, on the instructional side, um, especially because we deal with technical materials an awful lot. We want the instructors to have a solid teaching background 
so that instead of uh, just having raw knowledge of a field alone, they understand uh, the, princip the pedagogical principles behind uh, organizing materials so, so that they can be learned by students. But of course, they also have, that, have to have that industry technical background so that we know that they have the, they really do typically have that industry experience that they can bring in um, to be able to have that knowledge that they can also frame in a way that it can be shaped so that it can be learned by students. Uh, one of the things we see all the time is that people say, you know, everything's on the Internet, it's available for free, what are the needs, the need for textbooks anymore? And I always say there's a difference between raw information alone versus information that is, has been shaped uh, so that it can be learned by someone else. And so, ideally, we're always looking for those people that are aware of those two things, the industry or the technical expertise, as well as a good uh, pedagogical and theory background so that, uh, whether formally or informally, they have that idea of instructional design uh, so that the, the information can actually be relayed to students who are using the book. Well, Mark, just from uh, having been in academia, I can I can certainly see what you're saying there about the value of making the book um, accessible to the students. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the process of getting the book um, well, once you once you accept the manuscript, uh, the whole the sort of the editing process and the back and forth. And like, say for example, I was. Uh, I was the author, and I was writing a book that was going to be uh, to teach freshman composition courses. Um, who would, um, who do you have like editors specifically to look at those books versus if I was a professor writing a biology book, would that go to a different editor? Do you have editors on staff, or do you use freelance editors to to do overviews? So just just kind of that whole process from acceptance of the manuscript to when it goes to the printer. On a case-by-case -case basis, it can really vary. Uh, sometimes when the manuscript is still in development, uh, we, will, we have uh, several good freelance editors who are longtime textbook editors, and so they're very aware of those kinds of concerns about instructional materials. And we will actually have them review materials as they are produced um, not so much content-wise per se, but looking to shape those in terms of instructional design. Also, one of the big benefits that we have, because we're, as opposed to being a small standalone shop with, say, a staff of five full-time people, by being in a larger college system that has probably 1,200 faculty members, is that for any of the areas that we have, we will typically uh, use faculty members either here in Waco at our other schools uh, to review these materials as they come in. Or if it's an area that for some reason there's not a good match with someone here at the school, then we'll contract with an outside um, academic to act as a reviewer of the materials so that we can get a read on exactly how solid they are. Uh, we got a manuscript a couple of years ago that was um, the Dakota language. It was uh, like a, a guide to learning how to, uh, to speak the Dakota Indian language. 
And, I mean, that was nothing that we knew anything about whatsoever. And so what we did was that I scouted around from my days in grad school. I found a linguist that uh, I'd taken classes with. He recommended a guy that had specialized in that, and so we sent the manuscript to him to review so that we could really get a read on where we stood with it in terms of quality and as well as a place for it in the market. But once we accept a manuscript, uh, we will typically um, have it reviewed by at least two to three faculty members at different schools, internal to TSTC or external, um, to get their feedback on how solid it is, um, what's maybe missing, needs to be added, and those are all kinds of content decisions. And then once we have the manuscript more or less firmed up as to what it's saying, that's when we would actually enter more of the copy editing phase. And once again, uh, we manage a pretty large pool of freelancers, both on the editorial and graphic side, uh, who would fulfill those kinds of functions for us. We have some people that just copy edit and proofread, uh, some that are more concerned with overarching instructional design issues, and even getting down to, to say, indexing. Uh, we have people that that's all that they do for us, um, as that being their subspecialty and what's going on. Well, that's, um, that's really interesting. I, you know, before uh, talking to you, I had no idea I, about university publishing at all. I, uh, Mark, you had uh, mentioned that you do print on demand, and it's just like I thought, oh, wow. There's such a huge stigma in the publishing industry about print and demand that it just surprised me that actually you are using it. I definitely go for print and demand because it's cost-effective, as you had mentioned, but, you know, I'm just surprised. Well, we're actually pretty lucky because at the TSTC Waco campus, we have a really large printing production facility. And so early on, uh, especially with technical titles or technical textbook titles, say basic electronic troubleshooting for biomedical technicians, there's maybe 80 biomed programs like that in the country. It doesn't have quite the, or it doesn't at all have the same reach as you would have for, say, a first semester accounting book or a first semester composition book. And so for us, that was a real lifesaver early on um, because I always had this fear that we would print 5,000 copies of a book and then they would sit in a storeroom for the next 10 years. So for us, what we typically do for probably about 90% of the printing is that we will actually do three print runs a year. And we will get the, all the orders for an up, upcoming school semester probably two months before the semester starts, we'll print enough books to fill those orders and ship them out. And so that way we actually have very few, we, we carry almost no inventory whatsoever. And so that is, it has saved us a lot of storage costs. And at the same time, it has allowed us the ability uh, to update our books a lot more frequently, especially in technical areas where um, the technology can be changing on even a 12- to 18-month cycle so that, once again, you're not having to sell through 10,000 copies of a book before you can change one single thing in it. 
I think one of the big things about print-on-demand and when you get to self-publishing is not so much necessarily the stigma of the printing process itself because in a lot of ways you can't tell the difference between a book that's printed offset versus one that's done print-on-demand. I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the design that goes into the book, uh, the cover design, uh, the interior layout, and those kinds of things. Because if you see a book that looks like the cover and the interior were done in Microsoft Word, which is conceivable that you can do that relatively easily, um, whether you do it offset or print-on-demand, it's going to look kind of equally amateurish when you see the final product most of the time. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how you get the books into the hands of, I, I guess they would mostly go to the professors so that they can arm for their classes? Because when I was teaching um, back in the days before we really had the Internet or even email, um, I remember we had like door-to-door salesmen that would come to the English department and just kind of hope to catch you while you were in your office and sell you books, or I would get some books in the mail that you know I hadn't asked for. They, I would just get review copies. So has that? Do you still do that, or is it all like done through the internet now? Are you are you selling them through websites or e-catalogs, or are you on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, one thing about textbooks that you can say when it comes to marketing and selling them, they're just not inherently as sexy as say fiction is. You know, no one's mm-hmm. going to get as excited about the Bedford St. Martin's Guide to Writing as they are a new Twilight novel. So it's kind of an uphill slog there in some ways. But um, yeah, it was the same way when I was teaching English that yeah, when the textbook reps came by you always hoped that like they didn't see you in your office because you didn't really want to get trapped for a while. That's true. And the other thing was, if you got a free copy in the mail that you didn't ask for, those were the ones that you were going to sell almost immediately. So for us, we're small enough that we don't really have the capacity to do outside sales. Unlike uh, Cengage, they used to be Thompson Learning. They have like 600 outside sales reps that are kind of scouring the landscape. Typically what we do is that the, the sales cycle in textbooks is pretty elongated and so because most of your adoption sales will be for a fall semester and when that adoption comes in the fall colleges will use the book typically for at least a year if not two or three years because faculty members really don't want to have to change their preps uh, for a new textbook any more often than they have to. So what happens is, is in the summer, uh, you know, we get with our sales guy. He looks at our titles that are new that are coming out that year. And so in the summer, he will start doing research at that point. What kinds, what departments around the country could be using one of our new titles that we have coming out? Uh, and he has a, a work study that will work with him in doing a lot of this initial research. Uh, when the fall comes around, that's really the pre-sale period when he'll start contacting faculty members by email, uh, since we do primarily inside sales, uh, or by phone. He'll send them information about the book. He'll see if they're interested, if they would like to receive a desk copy. 
if someone is interested in receiving one, he'll send it to them. Then he'll start following up with them to see what they thought of it and figuring out what the adoption process might be at that particular school. Sometimes you'll have classes where one professor, a professor can choose the books for his particular course, but especially when you start looking at the larger adoptions where it is, say, a first semester composition textbook, that's typically where you'll have a committee that you'll have to deal with then. So then you have to identify those people. But typically your adoption decisions, the actual sale period will be made in the spring. And this is once again looking ahead to that next fall. And so uh, you have a really long cycle there to where you go from research in the summer, uh, where you're going to be pushing books, doing the pre-sale in the fall, getting the adoptions finalized in the spring, but then typically those adoptions will start the next fall. And for publishers, uh, one of the big things is then, or for us as a small publisher, is that you really have to concentrate on developing specific product lines because you can't do the shotgun approach to where you have 10 different books in 10 different departments where you're having to replicate that effort each time, what you really want to do is, is have as many books in a particular area as you can so that you can be building on the contacts that you've made before instead of having that one book in that area. But for us, we certainly um, use as much social media as we can uh, to get the word out because um, social media is free, I mean, direct cost-wise, although it's kind of um, it's a big time investment to really keep up with that. But, yeah, we do email newsletters that are built around specific product lines like our tech careers books. Uh, we have specific blogs that are de uh, dedicated to different um, product lines or titles that are coming out that we think have a lot of potential. And uh, and we're on Twitter, too, although I find that on Twitter we mainly find ourselves following and talking to other publishers than we really do an awful lot of academics, per se, uh, mainly because I think faculty members are already so busy teaching, grading papers, prepping courses, meeting with students, going to committee meetings, that um, they don't have nearly enough time to be kind of randomly browsing on the internet for textbooks um, as, say, maybe your typical fiction reader does who's really interested in following a lot of information about vampires or zombies or something like that. Yeah, I've, I've, as an author, I, I kind of have found that myself, especially with social networking, that uh, the people I talk to tend to be other writers or publishers and not so much the people I want to sell my books to. <laughs> But it's it's a right. great place to get information from your colleagues. Um, we're we're just about out of time, so um, I guess we want to wrap up here. Can you uh, let us know again your contact information, like your your website, please? Sure. Uh, our main website is publishing.tstc.edu, and then we also have a blog that we maintain that's kind of a nuts and bolts view of uh, college textbook publishing that is at tstcpublishing.wordpress.com. Okay. Well, great. Thank you, Mark, for uh, being our guest tonight, and I, I'm sure we have 
um, people that uh, would have liked to have asked other questions, so I'm sure they can find a way to contact you then through your website. Sure. Hey, it was my pleasure, and uh, I really appreciate y'all taking the time to talk to me. Well, it was our pleasure, too. You've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. You can learn more about our guests on Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Stay tuned for the next installment when we talk to James Strudinger. He will be talking to us about using your book as an investment tool. We would love to hear from you about tonight's show, so please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views and Loving Healing Press. And filling in for Victor Volkman at Loving Healing Press, this is Tyler Tischler at Superior Book Promotions in Marquette, Michigan. And for Reader Views, this is Irene Watson in Austin, Texas, saying good night. <laughs>